Well, welcome to Eastlake. We are so glad you're here this morning. My name is Brandon. I'm the teaching pastor here. We are on part four of a series we're calling Advent. It's uh, a series that leads up to Christmas. Christmas, obviously, uh, Eve tomorrow night. So we'd love to have you back for that. But um, Advent has always been kind of an interesting thing. I don't know if you grew up with Advent, but it's a, it's a season that teaches us the value of waiting, that some things in life are worth waiting for. Um, and the wait is part of the process and part of the enjoyment. If you've ever been to a restaurant where they're like, it ain't fast, but it's worth waiting for. Or if you've ever heard these words, honey, I'll be down in a minute. Um, you know that uh, there are good things in life uh, that are worth waiting for. In child dedications, I'm sitting in the back and I'm reminded of the, the advent of waiting for the arrival of your child for uh, nine months. It's, it's that process. It's that like all these, because waiting brings with it, what, expectations, anticipation, um, and then actual reality. And, and, and sometimes those things are a lot different. Um, in first service, we had nine kiddos get dedicated, and um, two of the moms read these letters and uh, mentioned um, we uh, did not expect um, 24 hours of labor, and yet you came finally, right? And one mom was, did not expect 40 hours of labor. And I'm sitting in the back going, at what point do you be like, you know what, I changed my mind, I don't want this kid, I'm, I'm so, like, this is, I'm in a new season now, uh, the, the nine months, then, then just a little bit more, and always, always waiting, and the shaping process, that you're, you're like, becoming a mom and becoming a dad in those nine months, and, and it just kind of teaches us naturally a little bit about that. That's kind of what um, this, uh, this thing that the church has done throughout the centuries of Advent, of waiting for um, the arrival of Christ. Now, it's a reenactment. We do it together. It's part of a liturgy, which is basically doing sacred things together. We come, we form, we, we form uh, in, in chairs, and, and we, we sing together. We celebrate together as we, uh, as we wait and as we, as we learn from this sort, sort of thing. Um, and it's interesting because it's the opposite approach that, we, that our culture takes um, because um, Advent has been looking at the you, – you won't appreciate a light in the darkness until you fully uh, – uh, invest and, and understand the darkness. Um, that we say, listen, we explore. It's, it's been a very negative and dark series. If you've been a part of this for any, any length of time, I, I think you typically come in from the car where the radio station's saying it's the most wonderful time of the year, right? And then you come in here and I'm talking about how like things suck and life's not great and, uh, and where's God in the midst of all of this and uh, let's pray and go home. And you're like, no, this is the most negative. Could you be a little bit more positive? Could you wear like a cool hat, like one of those, you know, uh, the, the, I'm trying I can't even think of the name of the hat. Elf hats or something that would make this Christmas hat. Santa hat. That's the word I'm looking for. Santa hat. Would you wear a Santa hat? And at least when you're delivering this news, you could be like, but you know what? We always have Santa Claus. Do you know what I mean? I want some more of a positive spin. It's been a very, very negative series. Intentionally so. Because everything else that you get outside of the walls of this building is positive, 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 all leading up to Christmas, okay? Everything else is. I feel like I need to be a little bit like, hey, but what about this? But what about when life's not great? Because for some people, it's not great. And this time of year only accentuates that even that much more. I, I liken it to this this week as I was thinking about it. I'm trying to, trying to illustrate how um, Christmas in our culture is the anticipation is all on the front end of, of this thing. We get so excited, and then Christmas, and then it's sort of like December 26th, how, do, how fast can I get this tree out of my house, right? Uh, how quickly can I get these decorations down? Which in tradition, um, it, for Advent, for churches, it was 
no decorations until Christmas Eve. Uh, and then the 12 days of Christmas takes place after Christmas leading up to Epiphany. It was all afterwards. It was like this, wait, 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 wait. If you've ever had a really good dog, you've seen this good dog trick where you put the treat on the end of the nose and you step back slowly and you be like, wait, wait, wait. Okay, and, blah, 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 and then just go to town, right? That's what Christmas is supposed to be. Wait, 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 it's dark, it's dark. Or but then culture does it, and it's like my dog. You put it on the nose, you're like, wait, and, then, blah, blah, and you're like, stupid dog. You know what I mean? You wait until it gets, that's the point of Advent. So that's the difference where we're going for. That's why in the songs that we sing, we sing things like the thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. A weary world only rejoices if it truly understands its weariness. If it only understands the darkness that it is, it's hard to say we hope for a savior when you're like, I'm doing pretty good in life. I got all these things and I'm, I'm getting all my Christmas list done and I think I'm getting what I want this year and all of that. That doesn't sound like I need a savior. This sounds, instead, it's far more healthy, I think, for us to be in, in this spot where we look at it and say, you know what? There's been some pretty dark things. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. We feel like, we, we, we reenact the story of Israel being in exile, and we're like, I kind of feel like I'm kind of in exile because I'm not getting uh, the, not only the things that I want, I'm, I'm getting like, I'm, I'm just getting the screw job on this thing. I'm, getting, I'm, I'm on the raw end of the deal. I'm, I'm, I'm hurting. And it's really hard for me to go out in a very society that prizes uh, public optimism in this season and for me to be going through really a dark hell of my own personal existence. Um, and so a lot of people do identify a lot with the Advent hymns that point towards we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting, and it's only getting darker and darker and darker. And we're, we're crying out for a light in the darkness, a little bit of a hope uh, that he might come. So Advent is defined as anticipating the arrival of the king and his kingdom. We reenact this every year, and it culminates towards Christmas, the arrival of him. And you come tomorrow night, and what you'll, you'll probably hear somebody like me say, or if you go to a different church on Christmas Eve or whatever, because you go with your parents, that's fine. Um, I'm not judging, whatever. Um, and you come, and you, and you hear somebody, and, and I'll, I'll read from Luke chapter 2. I'll be, hey, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken into the entire Roman world, right? Right? Um, which places it for us in history, that we actually believe that he has come. But then what's so important is the best sources that we have, the best source material we have about who Jesus was comes from four different authors, the people who wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what they had to say about Jesus is that he seemed to be infatuated with not just his current arrival, but something that was coming, a world that actually does make sense, a world with an absence of pain, with a fullness of hope, that something is coming. So in Advent, we wait for the arrival of the king. We, we, we celebrate the fact that he has come, and we anticipate and we look forward to a time when he is coming again. That's that, that there will be resolution in this world. That, that Listen, I don't even necessarily want to escape all of the pain. Like I can, I can understand living in a world with brokenness, but what I cry out sometimes for is, God, help me connect the dots as to why any of this is important, right? I'm not saying that I need to have like this perfect life, but when things happen to me and they don't make sense, I'm crying out in like a, a, a metaphorical exile here. Oh, come, oh, come, and, and connect these dots. Why would any of this happen? I feel like I'm a genuinely decent person. And yet there are so many questions about the existence of why things happen and why this life and all that stuff. And Advent for us places us in that moment. And so today I want to talk about an unlikely hero of Advent um, in, in the church kind of world. Uh, usually weeks three and four are reserved for this character, um, but uh, 
Um, I skipped it last week, and so now I feel obligated to talk about him this week. He's an unlikely hero for this reason. Um, he doesn't show up on any Christmas cards, I promise you. None of you got a Christmas card with John the Baptist on the front, right? Dressed in animal rags, uh, eating sh- grasshoppers, um, and, and talking like crazy. He's got just crazy hair. He looks like, he looks like the guy who like, crawled out of his uh, little cave or the little underground fortress, for Y2K fortress from like nowhere, Montana, and he comes down once in a while, like once a month, to trade evaporated milk for beef jerky, and he feels like that kind of a character, right? Odd dude. You wouldn't want him on the, on the front of your, uh, of your Christmas cards. And he speaks in that sort of language. He speaks in that kind of crazy uncle whatever uh, language. And he's, he, uh, he used some pretty hard- hardcore language in his public teaching. Nobody would ever accuse John the Baptist of watering down the gospel or his teaching or whatever, or catering to people to get them to like them. In fact, for a lot of people, a lot of people would look at a character like that, like you and I, like these polarizing figures and be like, who would like somebody like that? Why would you like someone? Now, people do. People like polarizing figures. They like people who say what nobody else is willing to say because they don't want to be uncouth, and this is a social society or whatever. They like them a lot. And then there are those who are put off by them. Some people like them so much they vote them in as president, and then that it's its own thing, right? So he saw himself, listen, he saw himself as the one who comes before this is what John the Baptist in his language and his extremism begin using this language of I am the voice in the desert. And when he says this, he's quoting from this prophet Isaiah, right? And he's pulling this, he's reaching back into Israel's history. Israel find themselves, um, uh, when Isaiah is written, they're in exile. They're wondering what's taking place. They're wondering why all of these things have occurred. We were once the prized chosen nation of God. He pulled us out of Egypt. There was all these kind of uh, very observable mira- uh, miracles and miraculous things taking place. We uh, made our way uh, into the promised land of Israel. All of the, like, everything's good. Good, good, good. Good things happening. Good things happening. And then all of a sudden, he accuses us of infidelity in the relationship because we're not loyal to him as uh, as like the one true God that we're supposed to worship. And now we find ourselves in exile and we're trying to make sense of who we are as a people group and why it is that good people would lose. Or for self, you know, let's take uh, objectivity out of the point. For them, subjectively, we feel like we're genuinely good people. We feel like we've seriously been chosen by God and why we're trying to make sense of this loss and this pain and this grieving thing. And so many of these prophets would write and try and be a voice or try and be a calling back to or trying to explain why. And in one of these things, it talks about in Isaiah, like this, this redemption, this Messiah that's going to come, that's going to resolve everything, that's going to put Israel in its rightful spot. And there's a prediction about that Messiah in chapter 40, verse 3, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, uh, prepare the way for the Lord, excuse me, make paths straight for him. He considered himself to be that voice. He uses this and says, you, you and I have learned this as children. We've, we've learned that a Messiah is coming and that before he comes, there's gonna be this Elijah-like figure that is gonna come before him and, set, and be the setup man for Jesus. You know, you know what setup men are, right? They're the people who come before that get the crowd all riled up. If you've ever been to a live taping of a TV show, um, they always start and they're like, all right, we, we're gonna send out Joe. Joe's gonna be the setup guy. He's gonna come out in the audience and be like, all right, everybody, thanks for coming to Dr. Phil. Now, Dr. Phil loves it when everybody's really excited. So we're all gonna practice on three what it looks like when Dr. Phil steps out, right? And he tells these stupid jokes to try to get people excited and laughing and, and then get them excited like this false, but like we, we're trying to set the stage emotionally for this thing. A uh, quick example, um, my wife and I, just to put, you, put yourself in the predicament that John the Baptist found himself in, my wife and I went to New York 2012 before our twins were born. She was 
like uh, what, seven months pregnant, and we walked everywhere in New York City, which I thought was awesome. She, not as much. So um, we went to, uh, we got tickets to David Letterman because I'm cheap and they're free, and we, we got, but you, when you sign up, uh, you don't know who the hosts or the guests are. Um, you, you just want to go to the, the theater, you know, the, the cool um, Ed Sullivan Theater and do the whole experience. And so we're in line and we're waiting and word starts coming around about who the guests are on the show that week uh, or that night, excuse me. And uh, we heard through the grapevine that uh, Led Zeppelin was going to be on the show that night. Now, I'm not a huge Led Zeppelin fan, but like I can respect the fact that everybody else around me was super excited. And I was like, hey, we should be excited about this, you know, like let, I, I'm, I'm glad it wasn't like. I don't know, Kurt Cameron or something. I don't know. Like there's different, there's different levels of star and that feels like an A-list star that, like, that comes out for this kind of thing, right? And so we're getting excited. Uh, and so we go in and they got the setup man comes out and he's like, are you guys excited to let Zeppelin's here? And we're all, ah! And I'm looking around and we should be excited, ah! You know, that kind of thing. So anyways, come to find out, this show begins taping, they do the top 10 list, all that stuff. Uh, Dave calls out Led Zeppelin, and they come out and they do an interview, but they don't play on the day that we're there. It's just an interview, which is fine. Like, they're still in the building. That's a still really cool thing, but they, they didn't play. I, I remember them, everybody looking around like, all right, now, now we're going to transition. You're going to go from the seats and like the couch, and they're going to go grab their instruments, and they never did. They're like, all right, thanks, and then they, they dismissed. And then he had a musical guest. Now, I don't remember her name. I don't remember who it was. Um, I didn't know who it was when she was introduced, and then I haven't heard about her ever since. She had some sort of a one-hit wonder, and I don't think it was all that wonder. So it was, it was a tough deal. And I remember the setup man coming out and being like, are you guys excited? It was in between commercials, right? Led Zeppelin has just gotten up from the couch, shaking his hand, and left, and the setup man's out there going, all right, who's ready for... And I, I seriously tried to Google it this week to try and figure out who was that guest. It's not even on the internet, guys. It didn't make the internet. <laughs> I don't know who it was. And he's up there going, come on, are we excited? And like half the audience is like, well, we thought, it was, we thought Led Zeppelin was going to play. And, you know, and it was like this awkward, painful, uh, can we, everybody's thinking like, can we just get out of here? Because like we saw what we came for and then that's it. Uh, some of you parents or like family friends who came to watch your kid get dedicated and you're like, can we leave? Do we have to stay for this guy or what? So you've been in that position. Anyways, the pain of that, knowing that I'm supposed to be a setup guy and trying to get this all involved, John the Baptist found himself as the setup man for the, the Messiah, or he viewed himself as that in history. Like, I'm going to be the guy that points, and he, and he talks about this constantly, and he does it in such a way that he really, every chance he gets, tries to highlight the significance of the person who he is setting up. Chapter 3 of, of Matthew, verse 11. He's talking to his disciples, and, he, and he's, this is John talking to his followers, saying, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes somebody who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. See, baptism for them was a social thing. It was in that, in that culture, a way of identifying with the teachings and the person of somebody, like, I'm on this team. This is who I, I am. And so um, this morning, we did a baptism in our 930 service for uh, Kim, uh, and it was the same type of thing. We, we just kind of kept this thing going as a church, and, and so baptism took place for him, and so he had all these disciples who were willing to publicly announce his teachings, his kind of, again, polarizing teachings in this way, and as he did it, he reminded them, but this isn't enough. I'm just setting the stage for somebody whose shoelaces I'm, un, I'm unworthy to even tie myself. 
anticipation, expectations, and eventually the reveal. Verse 29 of John's chapter, uh, verse one. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, they had this relation. You remember the, the story is John's mom's Elizabeth and Jesus' mother is Mary and they were cousins. And so they're related by, like they have this family bond. So this probably wasn't like the first time that they met, but with his disciples in tow and Jesus' disciples in tow, it's this very public scene. And as they meet, you're wondering what are gonna be the, what's gonna be the cool exchange of words. And this is what he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it's clear at this moment that the story takes a turn. Because some of John's followers end up leaving him and following Jesus. Um, and John, who plays a very, like, probably equal role at this point in kind of the gospel accounts in terms of appearances and words about him, fades from the scene almost entirely. In fact, we don't hear about John until a few chapters later, Matthew chapter 11, verse 2, where it says this. Well, when John, who was in prison, wait a second, that's a big jump, right? This is a guy who's... Uh, got, uh, who is kind of crazy, and you're like, this guy looks like a guy who could end up in prison, um, and then he is. Come to find out it's because he's got some, uh, he, he criticizes or critiques uh, King Herod's marriage of his brother's uh, ex-wife, and he killed, it's a crazy story. It's an example of people in power, who, but who have no influence, um, are told and critiqued by people who have influence but no power, and they don't like that. People who are in power don't like that. They don't like losing power. And so what happens is he critiques and he finds himself in jail. Uh, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him. Here's his question. So again, the scene, he's in jail after this very public thing and after his support of Jesus the entire time, and we're related by blood, and et cetera, et cetera. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect something else? Or should we expect somebody else? Is it really you? Because we find ourselves waiting, and he uses the Messiah. Are you the one who is to come, which is code for the Messiah? Are you the Messiah, or should we find ourselves waiting for somebody else? It's interesting. This question, the form of it, the way that it was addressed, it's almost as if John's disciples are coming up to Jesus at some point, maybe in a public setting, and saying, a message from your cousin John, whom you're related to, if you don't remember, who actually baptized you, called you the Lamb of God publicly, said he was unworthy to tie your shoes and all that kind of stuff who's suffering in prison is asking you this, are you somebody that we can count on or not? Because we've had all these expectations and anticipations about what Messiah is supposed to look like, and then I find myself suffering in prison alone, and you are supposed to be somebody who can help me. You are the type of person who I've heard about, who are helping people with all of these different miracles and, and are super wise and your popularity is increasing and somebody that you care about is suffering and you're not doing anything about it. Now, perhaps you didn't know about it. Maybe this is us telling you information that you need to know. Your cousin's suffering, help him out. Or maybe you're not really the Messiah that we really thought you were. Are you the one that we were supposed to be waiting for or is it somebody else? Did we get you completely wrong? Things like this aren't supposed to happen to people like me. Someone like you is supposed to do something about things like this. Let me read those phrases again, but instead of reading them from the perspective of John, think about your own personal darkness or periods of darkness or personal pain, personal suffering. Things that have happened to you in your life that you just can't seem to make sense of, the dots don't connect, you've been a pretty decent person. You're wondering if there is a God who exists, like I would think that somebody would, like him would care about somebody like me and help me avoid these things in life. I mean, you can't avoid all brokenness everywhere, but at least help me make sense of this. 
or did I get you completely wrong? Things like this aren't supposed to happen to people like me. Somebody like you is supposed to do something about things like this. So either you're not who we thought you were, or maybe you didn't know, or honestly, we're just trying to make sense of all of this. Listen, this is a story that takes place, um, I think, in history some time ago, but this is something that takes place all the time in our own personal journey, in our own personal faith. Somebody like you is supposed to do something about things like this. Isn't that why I'm, isn't that why I'm a Christian? Isn't that why you're God? Like, should I look elsewhere? Because I've got serious questions about this. And we begin dropping all kinds of hints. We're really good at dropping hints to God. Like, maybe you weren't aware. Maybe we, we think we, he knows, he's watching. And, and, and so we, we, and even in like subtle prayers and the way that we talk with our friends or the way that you come up and talk to me and be like, so I'm going through a really tough time, but you know what? God's faithful, I think. We'll see. Anyways, and we're, we, we do this and we're like, we're you know, playing politics with this and we're dropping tiny subtle hints. We're kind of like Cousin Eddie at the grocery store, right? <laughs> Remember that scene where he, this, this is it, where he's like, yeah, Christmas is going to be tough. You know that RV? Well, coasted in here on fumes, you know? AKA, could you help me out a little bit? If I only had the money back that me and Catherine sent to the TV preacher to screw in the hockey player, right? <laughs> what about the kids? I, kids can fend for themselves, all that kind of stuff. Anyways, <laughs> I just had to quote, that was my, my own selfish thing. I wanted to quote that movie. Anyways, <laughs> I'm not one to test you or anything, but I just thought you were a little bit closer than watching me suffer through this ordeal. Are you the one to come, or should we expect somebody else? Listen to Jesus' response in all of this. You can take Cousin Eddie off the screen. Sorry, guys. <laughs> You're very distracted. Here's Jesus' response to this question. You or somebody else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you see and hear and see. See and hear and see. See how I did that? I read that wrong. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now, Jesus is attempting to describe, we, we, we are familiar enough with the gospel stories, or you probably read things to see that Jesus did some of these things, um, um, or at least was recorded as doing some of these things. Um, we get it. We understand his primary ministry didn't seem to be a healing thing. His primary ministry seemed to be a teaching thing, but people would come as they do uh, with physical ailments and say, hey, if you're so powerful, then why not fix this? And he would do some of these things. But it wasn't like that was like the, the reason that I came here is to make everybody feel good. That doesn't feel like uh, it fits with Jesus' sort of thing. And um, it's interesting because he doesn't do it to everybody, uh, not everybody. In fact, there's one time he shows up at a pool in Bethesda and he heals one guy. And it's almost as if he's like walking past everybody else. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Who's still lame? Heals one dude and then walks back out by himself. You know what I mean? Like, why not just be like the whole Benny Hinn, like just fix everything? Hey, everybody, everyone gets a car. It's like an Oprah deal, right? So uh, you all win. Um, Jesus didn't seem to do that. So what he's doing here, uh, and 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 people who were like original audience would totally understand what what is being said here. Jesus pulls back. This quote, he paraphrases from a passage about Isaiah who predicted like this whole, we're going to get saved, don't worry guys, there's something coming, it's going, to be, it's going to be fixed, we're just waiting, all we're doing is waiting right now. Somebody's coming who's going to fix all of these things. And the reason John knows about Isaiah is because he's been saying, you're the voice in the desert calling in the way, prepare the way of the Lord. He already has pulled that verse once, so let me tell you what else. Isaiah has to say. Then verse, 30, uh, verse 5 and 6 of chapter 35 of Isaiah. Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf and stop. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. 
So Jesus is saying, my ministry is validated um, by that kind of sort of thing taking place. But also, I'm pulling this old quote out from you saying the, the Messiah that Isaiah is referring to, that we as a nation have been waiting for for so long, is actually here. It's validated in the things that I do, that something brand new is emerging. And the pushback or the response would be, yeah, but like not like everywhere, Like, when we read that, we figured that the Messiah is going to come in and, like, it's going to be, like, this big wave of glory. Like, nobody's going to miss this, and everybody who's sick gets healed, and everybody who's poor gets rich, and everybody. It's going to be this massive show that nobody can deny, and you've done some little things here or there, but kind of, I mean, really kind of minor in comparison to the need. The production doesn't match up to the need. So I don't know if, are you the one, or should we expect a little bit something more? Verse six, blesses anybody who does not stumble on account of me. This is how he finishes this up. In other words, we expected power, we expected victory, we expected what we would classify as sort of a good bully, somebody who comes in and like bullies, but like for all the right reasons, because we've been bullied. When you're a kid and you're bullied, you want like the, your bigger brother to come and be like, well, I have a bigger brother at home and he's gonna come and I don't care what you did or said, he's gonna... Kick your butt. Anyways, we, we, we get that, and Jesus comes back, and, and, and his message to John felt so small and insignificant. It felt like, don't worry, these things are taking place. Yeah, but not for me. But not for me. Like, I'm still hurting. I'm still broken in, in, in this. Even as Jesus says those things, we have to acknowledge that they were taking place only in a few places with only a few people. They were and remain hidden signs. Little things, little glimpses. In fact, um, C.S. Lewis wrote a book on miracles because I don't know about you, but like the whole miracles sort of thing, it feels like when I read the book of Acts and when I read some of um, Jesus' ministry, it feels very abundant. And then you go to church or in my own personal life, um, even though you can maybe point to a couple things, you'd be like, that feels like a miraculous thing. I don't feel like like Friday is Miracle Day, or like every Sunday you come, we we do this. We're not that kind of a church, sorry. Um, uh, And and I, I... So I'm trying to make sense of these things. And Lewis, in this Miracles book, talks about how they were always, for him, glimpses into a world where there is no pain, a world where these things don't take place. Um, And we're going to do it in this small form to give us hope that that we crave, that John would talk about in Revelation, a place where there is no tears, and a a life of of existence, a life uh, that we've all been waiting for, right? This anticipation. We find ourselves in the waiting in the meantime. And we're kind of like... We're kind of like John. Like, where is that? Going through a lot of pain. And Jesus would say, well, remember that one time in your life where I came through for you? And you'd be like, well, yeah, but that was one thing. Like, I'm in pain now. I'm in suffering now. And that's what we do so often. And we want examples of, we want big, giant, undeniable examples of this. And we're invited into recognizing and being a part of and participating in the small things. In fact, when you pray the Lord's Prayer, if you've, read the, if you've read through that or prayed that or whatever, you say, Lord, help me to identify. Let me, let me as, as it is in heaven, let it be on earth. And let me be, my hands be a part of that process of doing those things. The reason that we love Christmas, by the way, is because everybody's so generous and it's the most generous time of the year and so creative and so loving and, and everybody's kind and we do all these sort of really nice things for people and it just feels like, oh, a little bit of peace on earth. Even if it's just for the 25 days of December that leads up to this, it feels really good. You do things, you're more generous at December, right? And we do this, 
And we think like, okay, this is great, this is fun, um, and I, I'm doing this. Why am I doing this? What is the motivation? What is the motivation behind me doing this? Is it because I'm supposed to? Because that what Christmas is all about? Because according to this, Jesus would say, you do this because of the inbreaking kingdom of heaven that it is kind of here, but it's already, but it's not yet. Let you get to be a part of this. That he could have come in massive power, but he decided to come in the form of a child and to show little glimpses here and there as we wait for what is to come. Listen, so today after this service in about 10, 15 minutes or so, well, no, at one o'clock because uh, it was a little bit of a break, excuse me. Um, there's gonna be about a group of 30 or 40 people, half of them probably East Lakers, half of them from other people in the community who are gonna gather in our lobby and what they do is they're putting together these like, um, they call it the prison bags. Uh, there are over 800 people in our prison system who will spend, be spending Christmas incarcerated. Uh, many of them not getting visitors or people just, you know, they feel, and, and at Christmas time, feel incredibly forgotten. So a small token, somebody had this vision a few years ago. We've been, this is like year five or six that our participation has been in it. They're going to get a bag tomorrow with, uh, with some, some new socks, uh, some stamps, um, some money in their commissary account, some, some, uh, um, some beef jerky, some, uh, all kinds of different things. And it's, it's small. It's a token. It's not much. It's not like $1,000 each. There's no way we could do that. But it's a small thing that sends this message. Listen, even though you find yourself in a very hopeless place, that you are not without hope, that somebody does care about you, somebody is thinking outside you. You are not, you do not lack worth. That even though I do not know you personally, we love you and we care about you, right? Like that is a small thing. It's not much in light of what's going on in our world and how much brokenness there is, but it's a small inbreaking. It's a, it's a little tiny piece of the kingdom of heaven on earth that we are invited to be a part of. Every time you sign on to be a foster parent, every time you give yourself away for the sake of others, every time you choose to live with less so that others don't have to live with nothing, every time you look in the eyes of somebody who is doing some sort of a, a their, it's their job, it's work, but it's a service thing for you, and you get to look them in the eye, call them by name, and validate their vocation as opposed to seeing through them, it's a small sign of the inbreaking kingdom that is already but not yet. This was whole thing comes down, was inspired by this, a quote from this uh, woman who is a, was a pastor in New York City who wrote a, is also a theologian, wrote a bunch of books. Her name's Fleming Rutledge. I'm gonna read this quote for you, and it's gonna be on the notes sheet. If you text the word notes to 97,000, you can get this, or I'll post it later this week. The mystery of God's activity in the world is that the tiny signs of faithfulness and love and mercy and hope, the tiny signs enacted by the Christian community, are the pointers to the glory that will come. This is not the way I would have done it. It's not the way you would have done it. No wonder we take offense. You and I would have made it obvious so that it would have stunned everybody. But this is how God planned it for reasons that we shall someday understand in the kingdom of heaven. So, so this year, this Christmas, not just for the next couple of days, again, Christmas goes beyond this. Um, we get a chance to do good things for people, to love people, not just because they're lovable, or because we want them to love us. We get to live out our faith through love. Why? What is the motivating factor? Because it's Christmas time when we're supposed to? Because we want people to like us? Because it looks good in our own personal resume or whatever? No, that's garbage. That's really selfish if you dial down into this. We do this because God is inviting us into bringing the kingdom of heaven here on earth while we 
wait for the full advent of his arrival. That we, and we live this out. We, we, it's Christmas we celebrate that he has come. We remind ourselves that he is coming again. That there is one day a world that makes sense of all of this brokenness. And in the meantime, you and I get to make sense of a little pieces of brokenness. That we don't solve it all completely together. There's no way that could happen. But we are invited to do the little things with the motivation that says, God, O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, thou dayspring, come and cheer. Our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. That this darkness that overwhelms us helped us to be a small light in this. So may we, may we this Christmas, but then let this be fuel for the entire year long. Understand that when we do this, we do this out of service for Christ as a response of his grace in our own personal life while we wait, while we wait, while we wait. Let's pray. Father, help us to see individually what this might look like in our life. May the people that we run into, maybe the life that we live, may this week is it's probably family and close friends that we uh, spend most of our time with. But sometimes those are the people that most rub us the wrong way and are the most difficult to deal with. We're pretty good socially with, uh, with keeping the image uh, clean for, for the people that we work with and, and uh, people we see infrequently. But it's the, it's the people sometimes closest that hurt us the most and are the most difficult to forgive and express patience with and love and kindness. And may we... Do it this week, not because we're good people, but because we do this, we're expected to do this. We, we, we do this out of response while we wait for a world that eventually is made right, for a world that eventually everything makes sense, and this is not how we would have done it, and that's great. That's fine. That's why you're God and we're not. So give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our life. The courage to act on it in your name. Amen.